What's up, Rebuilders? want to share with you part one of a two-part episode where I talk to Ross Dempsey over at Progressive Health. We talk lifting, we talk life, we get into a little bit of grind culture, what I think of that because I hate it. Uh, but enjoy it. Part two will be coming out soon, and I'll see you there. Welcome to episode 37 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with John Flagg. John, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, Ross, I, I really appreciate you bringing me on, man. Uh, my name is John Flagg. I own a company called Rebuild Stronger. We do online strength coaching and rehab, primarily for powerlifters. We, we do have weightlifters, crossfitters, strongman competitors, military fighters all on the roster, but we really do focus on powerlifters. Um, and that all started in a few years ago with my connections with clinical athlete, which we actually talked about before we hopped on air. Um, and background wise, I'm actually a certified athletic trainer. I've been one for, I'm going to make myself feel old now, 15 years, 16 years at this point. Um, so I started off as a clinician first and that's where all of this stuff came together. I'm super fortunate to have two awesome staff members uh, in Christy Fisher, who's a pelvic floor physiotherapist up in Manitoba, Canada, and Wyatt Christensen, who's an exercise physiologist uh, out in Arizona. He's actually, no, he's in um, Colorado Springs, Colorado now. He just moved. Uh, they helped me out a ton, and I've got just a great team of people that I get to work with every single day. All right, good, yeah. Um, so in terms of like your typical client and, and who you, you work with uh, with your team, who, who do you typically like like to work with? Who are your favorite clients to work with? <laughs> Ones that like to communicate a lot. Um, I know the answer is typically like what sport they participate in. Uh, but for me, like client or, or coach athlete relationships really important. So yes, most of the roster is filled up with powerlifters and strength athletes. But the ones that I really prefer to work with are the ones that want to soak up information. They want to be a part of the process, not just be told what to do. Uh, and they're super open to giving and receiving feedback, which to me is one of the most important aspects of, of a good coach athlete relationship. So those are really what I look for in my athletes, uh, as well as, you know, just being a good team fit, which typically means those things like communication is key. We have to have hard conversations. If you're willing to do that, then I know you're willing to take the steps to, to get better. Nice. So I know that uh, traditionally the kind of typical approach with programming anyway was, you know, do three sets, do 10 reps at, you know, 100 kilos. That's your that's your program there. Do that, you know, as a coach. Or I feel like I'll just speak for myself and say that's kind of typically how I felt like it was, right? But you're talking a lot about collaboration. So, you know, why why collaborate with the client and why get their feedback and communication because wouldn't that just make more work for everybody involved i find it makes less work um because one of the things that a lot of people chase in the industry whether you're a clinician or a coach is compliance and compliance is really really important like if your athlete believes in the program if they believe in what they're doing and they understand what they're doing compliance is probably going to be higher buy-in is probably going to be higher and results are going to be higher because your athlete can train with intent. But like a great example, you, you mentioned three by 10 and I literally cringe. Like when I hear that, I'm like, I just don't wanna do that today. 
right? Especially when you you're too many reps. More, too many reps. Maybe you're a more advanced lifter. Maybe you know. For me, it's just the intensity for a straight set like that. Just with what I'm lifting now, just it. I, I don't. I don't like the sound of it. But if you said, okay, cool, John, let's do a ten by three with sixty seconds rest, I'll be like, down, done, hundred percent. It's the same amount of volume. Probably going to use the same amount of intensity. I'm going to have controlled rest intervals. So I'm going to get the same amount of work in, but I'm going to actually do it. And like that, that's where that collaborative process comes in. Because if I can get my athletes to train more frequently, train in a way that they enjoy, still work super, super hard. Because it's not like we're, we're not working hard. If somebody tells me like, yeah, I just want to come in and like twiddle around. Now we have to have a hard conversation around like, do you actually want to be where you say you want to be? when we get into real coaching, but the collaboration helps compliance. It helps them enjoy the process. And from at least my perspective, a personal belief that I have as a coach is if my lifters ever leave, they should leave as a better lifter than when they started with me. If they go to another coach, I want that coach to go, wow, like you're knowledgeable about the process. You understand what's going on because people People don't just leave your services because they're unhappy. There's financial aspects and life aspects. Maybe they have a baby or maybe they got pregnant or maybe they've got like all these other things going on. They got to move and they got to take a break. Okay, cool. If they go with somebody else, that person should be blown away by how well-versed your athlete is. And that can only happen with, with collaboration. Yeah. I've heard in like psychology that like the therapeutic alliance, so like between the client and the therapist is like yep. the strongest predictor of like, you know, whether someone improves. So yeah, that's like a very interesting point that you make. Um, how, how do you get, say like a newbie lifter, right? They don't really know, you know, three by 10 or they don't know nothing about the gym. How do you get them to kind of figure out what they like? How do you, how do you kind of bring along that collaborative process with somebody who is, you know, not much experience? I'll be honest with you. I think, um, I think the same process applies to very advanced lifters and beginner lifters there's still going to be some level of experimentation. Now, the entry point, like the door that I start them in may be different. I might start a beginner off with just a super basic structure. You know, everybody makes fun of uh, like five by fives just because of, of, you know, rip a toe falling from grace. But like a five by five is a great starting point for most people. Let's just like see where you're at. Learn the movements, move around like a baby giraffe for a while. Like, let's, let's figure it out. And then we can really start to see where, like, what brings results and what do you enjoy doing? An advanced lifter, I'm probably just going to change the entry point. If you start with me and you're like, I've been doing conjugate for 10 years. I'm not just going to go throw you on like a super straight Russian linear progression immediately. Like let's, let's get something that resembles conjugate and let's start pulling stuff out and, and seeing what, what sticks, what you like, what we can change to get that result to go because it's going to be experimentation as coach. And as, as an athlete, like if you sign up with a coach, something that's really important from an expectation setting standpoint is you should, you should at least commit for three months to understand the learning process of what both of you are going to have to go through with each other. If you want behavior change, if you want your movement patterns to change, if you want any of those things and you want to get better, it's going to take three months. It's going to take reps. It's going to take practice. It's going to take all those things. And it is going to take a level of experimentation. Systems are great. You know, I mentioned conjugate. 
You mentioned linear periodization. You mentioned all these models and they help give you guardrails as a coach, but they're not an end all be all roadmap every time with people. So you've got to find those entry points. And with a beginner, keep it simple, explain to them like the basics. And I'm talking like basics, basics, right? You and I were talking, you know, working in like a, a commercial gym and stuff. There's people that don't even know how to like set up the J hooks or like what the rings on the bar mean, or you say knurling and they're like, what? It, basics, basics. And just start to introduce them to the system while they start to see results. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I'm actually just kind of reminding myself of how being in the gym, like every day, I pick up on little things, but like a new person to the gym or even someone who's been there a few months that just wouldn't be comfortable or they wouldn't know how to set up or do all these little things that I take for granted. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, so you mentioned, you know, some of the, the clients you work with are uh, like powerlifters or you do like rehab work. Can you just talk a little bit about like rehab work? Um, what is it and like the importance of it um, or who it's important for? Yeah, uh, really the, the, the company originally started with me primarily rehabbing injured powerlifters back to the platform. Um, my mission as a, as a clinician and a coach has always been to get people to better understand. And I know we're probably going to touch on this a little bit later, but, uh, I've had a bunch of old heads come into the clinic and, and as I was coming up, they just tell you that the sport itself, like wears you down. And it's not a personal belief of mine. I've seen 80 year old people compete, compete at worlds that like are crushing it. Smart training is super, super important. But I want people to understand that they can they can do they can lift they can power lift they can Olympic lift for generations, and it truly can be one of the things that can keep you healthy. So that's what that's where it started. It was like, okay, I'm an injured power lifter. I need help. Clinicians don't understand me because I walk in the door and I'm like, yeah, I I hurt this. I just want to get back to deadlifting 600 pounds. And people look at you like you're crazy. They're like, why would you want to do that? And I'm the guy that goes, man, that sounds like an awesome goal. Like, let's figure out what that, like how we can actually get there. And I think one of the interesting pieces to this is that a lot of people look at, they hear rehab, they hear physical therapy, and they think like little green therabands and in lightweights. But really my personal belief is, is just activity modification. Like let's, let's find what hurts. Let's work around that while still finding ways for you to train. So if it, the most common one is people like, yeah, my, my back hurts when I deadlift. Okay, cool. Let's find a range of motion or an intensity, like weight on the bar that is tolerable. While we do that, let's look at the rest of your life. I already tell you right now when lockdowns happened and I went from being on my feet all day long to sitting in a chair for eight hours, like, yeah. <laughs> they hurt my back too. Uh, but that was a piece where like my philosophy is, okay, let, let's find a way to train. Let's load those tissues and rehab you back until the, the point where when it's time to lift again, you haven't been so disconnected from it that it seems foreign because things like that actually increase injury risk more than the movements themselves. And let's, let's build that momentum so you still have also the mental reward of the activity that you love. Yeah, I get it. 
You may not be able to deadlift the way you want to right now, but you will in the future and very quickly. And when you finally can, it's not going to feel like you've got training wheels on, like when you were first deadlifting again. So that's kind of the approach we take um, is taking people from injury, getting like figuring out ways for them to continue to train until they're ready to fully train and then taking them from that point into the performance realm. Got it. Yeah. So I want to ask about external factors, but first of all, I think a lot of, you know, like somebody listening, right. They'll do the deadlift, they'll do the squat, whatever, you know, whatever exercise they'll get injured and they'll be like, right, that's the problem that's going out. I'm finished. You know, I'm not doing, you know, the bench again or whatever. What, what are your thoughts around, uh, the movement that got you injured, where you got injured and you know, how to proceed with that movement in your training. Okay. So of course we go over this for clinicians. So this is, is a pretty, pretty streamlined way to think about it. You have to find out what the actual triggers are. So people look at it like we we'll use deadlift again as the example, because that's the one that everybody's scared of. Right? So everybody says, Oh, it's the deadlift. So, but what about the deadlift? Was it the range of motion of that deadlift? Was it the volume that you did that day? Like, did, did you do a rack of volume? I know a guy right now was getting after it, getting after it, getting after it, and then decided to do like this CrossFit workout that was like five sets of five at 90% and he just wasn't ready. Like, that's a lot of volume. Was it the intensity? Is everything okay up to 100 kilos? And then as soon as you put five more on, like, how oh, this is starting to get painful. Or is it the frequency? Are you okay? Can you recover well deadlifting once a week? And then as soon as you slide that second day of deadlift in, like your back doesn't recover from day to day. We have to find those things. It's not the lift itself. It's what goes into it. And that's when you have to start digging in deeper because at that point you can then start to choose. And yeah, some of those things spill into each other, right? Like it may be like, it hurts just off the floor and it hurts once I get three reps in. Okay, cool. As a coach, what I'm going to select is a two inch block pull. So I get rid of that first little bit of range of motion. And all we're going to do is doubles. We may do eight doubles, but all we're going to do is doubles. And now all of a sudden you're back to deadlifting pain-free or at least at a tolerable level that you can see progress and see yourself get better because we're not aggravating it every single time. So what people tend to do is they take the baby in the bathwater and they chuck it out a window while they're driving 70 miles an hour. And they're like, yeah, I'm just never going to deadlift. Instead, like find the entry point. But you got to break it down into more than just the entire movement itself as being like the all-encompassing thing. There's so many variables that go into it that you have to explore. Yeah, absolutely. So many variables. So like, let's say somebody is a little bit scared of the deadlift, right? And, you know, we could even talk about why people get injured in the deadlift as well, but they get injured in the deadlift and they're just like, you know, what the hell do I do? Of course, their only option feels like to stop deadlifting, you know? So uh, what would you say to somebody who's kind of like, I guess a little bit hesitant about going back deadlifting specifically after, you know, they tweaked their back? Okay. So there's, there's two really, really important like qualifications here. Number one, is it actually worth it to you? This is something that's really important. And I think, uh, I know we're going to talk possibly about the Kevin Bass comments, um, yep. but you know, for me, everybody sees the Robert Overs posted posts and stuff like that with any sport, 
And this is what I find super interesting about lifting, right? We have NFL football players that get cracked in the head and people are like, yeah, you signed up for it though. Like they just don't care. You know what I mean? We've got, now you're starting to see incidents of CTE in soccer players internationally because they're taking headers like crazy. So, but it, like general public goes, yeah, but you signed up for it and you're getting paid and you're doing all this stuff. So it's fine. Like, it's for my entertainment. It's okay. But as soon as somebody gets hurt at a really high level of lifting, they're like, oh, idiot. Look at them. Can't do that. The thing is, is all those people signed off on that level of risk. The, the higher you get in performance, the higher you get in standing. Like I always use Ray Williams as an example, like Ray squatting a thousand pounds, guys. Like there's not a, a large margin for error. The risk becomes very, very high, but he signed off on it. He said, I'm okay with this. What I do in the gym, I'm okay with. I've signed off on it. And like, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mentioned this last night in another show. I'm at the level right now where I'm getting to a point where I'm going to have to sign off on additional risk because my training has to be so intense. So my first question to people, if they're apprehensive is, okay, cool. Is it worth it to you to bring that back into your training? If you're a power lifter, the resounding, the resounding answer is typically a yes. Most people are like, yeah, I want to get back to deadlifts. I want to get back to competing. There's no such thing as a squat push. <laughs> like, no, you have to deadlift. So people are like, yes. Okay, cool. So that's barrier number one. If it's a no, all right, cool. We can figure out whatever else you want to do. We can figure out what your next goal is and we can, we can achieve that. However we want to achieve that. But then once that happens and once you say yes, now we have to navigate other things. We mentioned the training aspect of it, but we also have to understand there are days where you're going to be fearful. There are days when you're going to come in and it, you know it's going to be a little bit more sore. You're going to have to make more modifications and you're going to have to change things around that it's not going to be a straight line. Just like training is never a straight line. That's the other piece that's always funny. It's like, yeah, my strength goes up and down and that's normal, but like injury, I should just go in a straight line and recover like a robot. No, it's going to be up and down. Understand that. There's going to be days where it's fearful, but the key is just like when you were super healthy and you felt tired and you felt banged up and you stayed up and watched too much Netflix last night, you still drug your, your ass to the gym. And when you're done, you're like, oh man, I feel great. I don't regret going to that, that workout. Same mentality. You have to come in with that approach and chip yeah. away at it because reps are going to make you feel better. Reps are going to make you feel more confident. Like you have, you have to break the expectation. Because the expectation is, I'm going to pull this, and it's lights out, right? Make good choices, modify the way you have to, and what you'll do is you'll pull it, and it won't. And then you go, oh, that felt good. Chalk it up as a win. Yeah, yeah. I feel as though, the, uh, you know, keep moving forward and, and kind of modify your approach. It's like that's just such a, a useful way to approach something like a deadlift where you know, maybe with the barbell that caused the injury, use dumbbells, use a Smith machine, use whatever you have to, but uh, modify. Um, so you, you mentioned external factors that go into an injury, right? So we're in the gym, get injured on the deadlift, doing the barbell, but what are external factors outside of that setting that might have, you know, played into the pain, the injury that you feel? And there's so many, 
there's so many that like, even from a scientific standpoint, we don't know all of them yet. And we don't even know the magnitude that they actually have. Uh, one mindset though, that I do find to be really prevalent. And this, this is more coming, like this is decades of people thinking this way is it it's, it's physical activity that leads to injury period. And if you look at any of any recent studies, especially along like low back pain and those sorts of things, a greater indicator of pain incidence is a sedentary lifestyle. So Wait, say, say that again, say that again, because that's, uh, that's an important point. A, a higher prevalence of injury or pain comes from a sedentary lifestyle. So you're, so movement, exercise, working out, that is going to cause a lower risk of injury. Than, it's protective. It's protective. Okay. Then, you know, just doing nothing, let's say, being inactive. Yep. Yep. And everybody understands, like you go for a walk, you go for a run, like your heart adapts, your blood pressure goes down, like these health markers happen. But then like, then they think that, oh, but if I lift weights, I'm going to get all this wear and tear on my joints. Like adaptation only happens in my heart. Like, no, the rest of your body adapts in the same way. So if you train, if you lift, if you exercise, your body's going to adapt to those loads and it's going to bolster itself to those loads like osteopenia, osteoporosis, walk, load, load your skeletal system, and it will respond by creating more bone. It will hypertrophy your bone. Ligaments hypertrophy, muscle hypertrophies, tendons hypertrophy, granted all at different rates, right? Bone, ligament, tendon, very, very small, like very slow hypertrophy rates. But muscle hypertrophy rate that everybody thinks about, that comes from load. The body will adapt and you will be, you will get protective effects of, of activity. But what people do, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you've done this in a, in a session. Somebody comes in, they're like, oh man, I'll tell you what, after yesterday, it, we did an upper body session. I know but my hamstring just is killing me. So like, okay, cool. That I understand completely. And all you did was like bench press and rows and like a couple pull downs and then some shoulder work and you, you got them out of the gym, right? Most of it was seated. So you're like, I don't understand what's going on with your hamstring. Well, then they tell you, yeah, but you know, I, I went and I, I was driving around, had a whole bunch of stops. I was getting in, in and out of my car. I think it was probably like 30 or 40 times. I'm not used to that. Okay. So you thought it was in the gym that something happened, but you got in and out of your car 40 times wait a second, like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about out of the gym activity levels. Let's talk about staying up and binge watching Ozark. Let's talk about like your, your Apple TV subscription. Let's talk about your drinking habit. Let's talk about like the food quality that you have, how frequently you're eating or not eating, how many meals you skip, what's your work stress look like? How, what's it sound like? And what's it feel like when your 17 year old daughter is screaming at you before you have to go to the gym? You know what I mean? Like these are all factors that are actually going to impact not just performance, but recovery. And we just brush them off. We're like, ah, this doesn't matter. Like if, if you're in the middle of going through a nasty divorce, guess what? Training recovery is going to suck. And your injury rate is probably going to go up because of those factors, not what you're doing in the gym. Yeah, it all, it all adds up. All the stress adds up. It's just, I guess, it's not as obvious as... Uh, the workouts in the gym, all that other stuff that you just mentioned coming into it will really take its toll. Um, I love, I just want to jump in real quick. People do actually like put you stress and distress in like into two columns. 
Like eustress is stress that you can adapt to and improve upon. And distress is like detrimental, like the divorce that I mentioned, right? The thing is though, like we can do that in our brain. That sounds awesome, but your body doesn't know the difference. It's just stress. It's just something that it has to respond to. And most of the time it's going to respond in fight or flight. It's going to dump a bunch of cortisol into your bloodstream and ask you for energy resources to recover. And sometimes it's just too much. So that all adds up. Yes, it may be you stress. Going to the gym is is beneficial. You'll adapt to it. It'll be great. But like chronic low levels of work stress, you don't adapt to. You don't get better at, at dealing with a toxic work environment. Like it just doesn't happen. So those things add up. And basically when those, you've got that, that distress that's sitting there in that, in that cup and filling it up 80% every single day. And you walk in with an 80% full cup every single day, you've, you've not got a lot of room to pour more in. And people just love to, oh yeah, just drop this in there. Yeah. More. Yeah. It, it can really add up. Like I, I'm just thinking about two weeks ago, I, was like, oh, I'm super motivated. I'll do a bit of extra work, whatever. And, you know, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll just, you know, get my sleep or whatever. And like, you know, the next day I was like absolutely zapped from staying up that little bit later. And uh, I just like had to take a nap. Like I literally could not function without like taking a nap because my body was telling me like, you know, slow down. So like, uh, yeah, all the stress adds up. Even if you invite it into your life and say like, oh, I can do this a little bit more. Or I can take it. It's like, yeah, you can't take it off. Dude. Maps are the bomb, by the way. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> they're essential. Uh, just to, uh, depends how you use them. Exactly. The tricky part is not overdoing them where they become like a second sleep in the day. Exactly. You can't, like, why am I sleeping for eight hours at one o'clock in the afternoon? And all of a sudden, I'm night shift. I don't get it. <laughs> that would be a bomb, a bomb map right there. Um, it would. So, so one of your posts you had online and it's kind of everything we're talking about here is, is the barbell. So you had a post why I love the barbell. So why do you love, you know, the barbell? Why do you love barbell training? And you like, what does it do for you? Uh, the barbell for me in particular has done many things. Um, I owe the barbell, the current life that I live in. Like, I know this is an audio only podcast, but if you were to look behind me, I've got a large variation of barbells on the wall. Um, I'm a coach. This is my profession. This is my life. It's put me in a position to not only coach other athletes, but coach other business professionals to build their own businesses and, and henceforth. Like it's just, it's been amazing. It's taught my family, myself, massive lessons throughout learning about it. Just like most people would say about whatever sport they're super passionate about, you know, hall of fame speeches in the NFL, in baseball, in basketball, volleyball, it doesn't matter the sport. Like those people are always going to tell you like, this sport is my life. It taught me so much. So for me, that was the barbell. That was Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting. And it, it has legitimately changed my life. But one of the reasons I love the barbell in particular is because of its accessibility. Now, everything is a tool. Like if we want to bring it all the way down to like finite levels, the kettlebell, dumbbells, uh, a loading pin, like landmine attachments for like all this stuff they're all tools but for me 
from a, a training perspective, there's not many things that are as brutally simple as a barbell that you can load as efficiently. Dumbbells are great. They have limitations. Kettlebells are great. They have limitations. The barbell is amazing. It also has limitations, but you can load it in a balanced manner. You can overload the hell out of it. Like, yeah, if you want to squat 100 kilos, <laughs> my suggestion is to put it on a bar because if you want to pick up a 100 kilo dumbbell, mm, <laughs> you're going to put yourself in a funky position. So it allows such variability in training in such a simple way. Plus, on top of that, outside of the fact that like most gyms also have an extensive rack of, of dumbbells. You can pretty much go into any gym in the country and find a barbell. It may not be in the best condition. It may not be the power bar that you love, you know, it meets, but it's a barbell. You can't say the same for kettlebell practitioners because I, I think kettlebell sports actually amazingly fascinating. Um, it's a super, super cool thing, but like how many gyms actually have a good wide variety of competition level kettlebells? or even just something that's appropriate. Very few. Can you modify it with a dumbbell? Sure. But like who's going to do a snatch test with a 50 pound dumbbell? Like, eh, it's probably not going to be great. So that's why I prefer the barbell as a tool. Plus there's just something badass about it, man. Like it, once, once, I've, I've had so many older women come and work with me, 76, 78, you know, 80 years old. And as soon as they're able to get a bar on their back and squat it, like just throw them in a phone booth and they're going to pop out a Superman. Like, I just don't understand the light in their eyes just goes so bright. Uh, and I've only seen it really happen with the barbell. So that that's why that's where my bias lies. I understand there's other tools. There's a bunch of people that absolutely love them. My love is with the barbell. I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> yeah, unapologetically, uh, big favor of the barbell. And I think it's the most efficient way to lift as well, you know, to get strong. And like, there's loads of other ways like the kettlebell or like dumbbells. But, you know, uh, if you only had to pick one. Um, and of course, I, I don't know many people who only use the barbell. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's always going to be, nearly always going to be a combination of the barbell plus, you know, something else. So, um yeah, it's, it's a great tool. And I love that with clients to see, you know, the look on their face when they kind of do something they don't, you know, uh, expect to do. You know, they lift that that heavy weight or they, they you know, get that that PR. It's just like, it's like nothing else. So that's, yeah, really a great feeling. It is, man. I love seeing them succeed. That's the best part of the day. Yeah, making their day kind of, yeah. Um, so we're, we're kind of talking a lot about like, the psychology of, of training and like your mindset and kind of just like uh, talking about how things are going as opposed to just like blindly going in and moving. Uh, so another post you had was uh, a bad day of fishing is still a good day. So it, it's a very kind of like uh, psychological or meta sort of thought. So could you explain that a little bit and how it relates to training? Well, I mean, you know, the, the root of that saying is, is that, yeah, you might not have caught anything, but you still got to go fishing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a very old man adage. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I get it. Uh, but the same thing happens with the barbell. Like a, a bad day of training doesn't have to be the end of the world. And we have done an excellent job, you know, 
not not a positive job, by the way, but an excellent job at romanticizing like the grind and no days off and like everything has to be perfect. But that's just not how life works in reality. So we have to maintain perspective that in a lot of instances, it may have been a bad day, but we're still blessed to be able to do something like this. We still walk through a bunch of barriers just to get started. We, we still got our butt in the gym. We still did the things that we were supposed to, and they might not have been super optimal and they might not have been exactly what we wanted to that day. But even when you're fatigued, even, even when you're tired, when you go in and you still do the work, then you're going to see result. It's the people who are able to stack those bricks up the highest that start to, to really see the benefits of it. I've been training for 20 years at this point. Like, do I remember workouts that I skipped? No, but I remember the ones where I was like, man, I, I don't want to do this. And I went in and did it anyway. And didn't do it anyway and happy with it. <laughs> like, like I walked out and I was like, man, I'm glad I did that. But that, that workout kind of sucked. But I'd, I'd much rather do that than, you know, than not do it at all. Than not have been able to have the opportunity to go fishing. What's up, Rebuilders? Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Also, leave a rating. that helps people like you find the show and reach more people. Appreciate you. See you at the next one.